So here I was caught in this squirrel cage. The town was only 35,000. Uh, if Jack is here this morning, they used to call me the bishop of this town, Bishop of Yakima, so I, I guess I was an excellency of a kind of a left-hand order. I probably knew as many Masons as I did Catholics. In fact, when I left town, they gave me a big send-off in a suitcase. <laughs> I've often wondered why they gave me that, but I presume I was in good, good spirits, they did. All the drunks in town used to come to me, and there was ten other priests on the staff that all come to my confession. Gee, and I wonder, what the heck's this guy coming in here for to meet? So I'd get him in the parlor, and he'd start conning me. I could sense it, and the boy, I'd lay him out. I said, you got to be honest. Don't con me. I still hate to be conned. And I'd heard some about AA that there were two or three guys used to meet that didn't have much place to meet, so I started sending these guys to AA to get them out of my hair, figuratively speaking. <laughs> and what used to get me, they'd come back sober and happy and respectable and say, my wife has come back. I was taking care of these guys. In fact, I got them a club room. I went down and conned some guy into a club room. <laughs> I was getting so many customers I couldn't, I knew I'd have to get a bigger place. <laughs> Rent free. And then they asked me, Father, would you come up and bless the joint? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? You want me to go up there and give scandal? <laughs> give scandal. Being seen with a bunch of drunks. <laughs> But it used to bug me. How could these people be getting help and I send them there to help and I can't get it? Poor old me. Self-pity. Well, it went from bad to worse. So, I had been reported to the grapevine. <clears throat> One of the brethren that uh, at times I didn't seem to be quite normal or something. I don't know what they thought. <laughs> Maybe just a little inconsistent. <laughs> I conned a guy and get me a 20-acre plot to build a school. We had a nice home out there. I intended to have a high school if we could. But it ended up with that's where I did my drinking. You know we had planted hops. That's a great hop country in Yakima. And this guy was the most successful hop broker, a grower in the territory, so he put in 20 acres of hops. And we used to get these Mexican people come up to work, and of course, being right-handers, you know, I'd go out there to keep them on the job. I'd go out and I'd put my bread on and Cassie can walk and read my breviary, and boy, they were working. And they'd say, well, how come you get to work? I'd say, well, the, the potteries. All this. Well, finally, I hit some sort of a bottom. I don't know which one it was, but it was enough to, that I went to my superior and I said, listen, if you want, don't want all hell to break loose around here, you better get me out of here. Because I'm just about the end of my rope. I can't run, hide anymore. So he said, okay. He says, I'll send you into Portland to work with the men in the retreat house. He said, you like to work with men. And I did because the ladies' altar society used to drive me bucks. <laughs> if I ever wanted an excuse to drink, I'd just go to the ladies' altar society meeting. <laughs> Thank you.
one cup of tea with them, and then I'd go out and have my water filling Frazier. <clears throat> so they sent me off to Portland, the city of Roses. Going to work with a man, geographical cure. And I'll tell you, no one was ever more sincere than I was to, to beat this thing. And I went along pretty good for about two months. And I thought, geez, I'm doing fine. Have a little celebration on this because I'm a very nervous guy. <laughs> so, tranquilization, I got it. Well, my immediate superior told me he had been forewarned. I don't know who forewarned him, but I got a good idea that they had a pretty good book on me. That if ever I didn't finish a retreat, I'd had it. And I remember on one occasion a fellow came in, you know, we have counseling to retreat. You stir them up and get them into you, see. So I stirred this guy up and he came into me, you know, and I'd had a few belts and I was sitting back there and I said, now, what's your problem? What can I help you with? He said, Father, I didn't come in to talk about my problem. I came in to talk about yours. <laughs> That's getting about as strange as you can get. I said, well, what's the message? I'd had it. He said, you're not conning me. He said, I saw you in there that last meditation. He said, you're pretty good, though. He says, I don't think the rest of those stoops notice it, but I notice it. I'm an AA. I said, well, I do. He said, the first thing I'm going to do, he was a Catholic, he says, I can't touch you as a priest, I'm scared of you as a priest, but if, you, if I can touch you as a drunk, I'll take you on. I says, I'm a drunk, take me on. <laughs> he said, just to remind you that you're a drunk, he says, from now on I'm going to call you Barney. My name is Bernard, so he says, you'll be Barney from now on. I says, okay. My rebaptism. <laughs> Boy, and I'm telling you, that was a baptism that took to, because I was born into a new life, if ever I was, from that moment on. So he says, now you can't uh, be going this way because I was the first priest, Jimmy priest too, anywhere, any type of priest that uh, was ever running around the Northwest Territory up there. So we had to be very anonymous. So I went down and bought a pair of slacks and a pineapple shirt. So he said, I can take you one or two places. He's like, we go down to Montanoma Hotel, the business professional people. But he said, you're liable to run into somebody you know down there, some of your retreaters. He said, I'm going to bring you another place. He said, I'm going to bring you down Gleason Street, Skid Row. He said, you'll know, you won't meet any retreatants down there, but you're going to meet some people that you're going to become just exactly like if you keep drinking. So we went down to Gleason Street. <laughs> Me and my pineapple shirt. Oh, dude, I stand out like a rose, all these Skid Row guys in there with holes in their pants, and I come in looking like a Palm Springs dandy. <laughs> so there I was. First guy I heard talk it up and say, when I came in, I had to look up the definition of God in the dictionary. And then he proceeded to get one of the most beautiful spiritual talks I ever heard. Like Joe said last night, that was the first time I'd had any contact with people as a whole. I felt comfortable. The guy next to me, he said, you know something? 
He said, I got about that much brain left. I said, You have? I could see it. He says, I don't have much to get wet or to keep dry, do I? Geez, I'll never forget that the day I died, because I was, I was afraid I was going to lose my marbles. This poor guy since has died, found dead in a hotel room on a peraldehyde diet. Well, anyway, we went on this way, and, uh, of course, I was still very cagey about my anonymity, which to me is the most fatal thing you can have in AA. I see more guys die because of this one fact. So anyway, it got so bad, I remember one time I went down on my own to this Gleason Street meeting, and there was a good little padre in there. He wasn't an alcoholic, but a very, very wonderful, zealous priest that used to work the alcoholics. And he was in there giving a talk. And I go to the door, and I see this thing, and I say, I can't go in there. You tell the bishop, and I'm dead. And so I proceeded to go out on a dry drunk, which I eventually went down. <laughs> You know, we just don't go on wet drunks. We have to sow the seeds of a dry drunk. And brother, we can sow well. Mentally resentful, self-pity, emotional, moral. And if we sow those seeds, it's guaranteed that someday we'll wet them down. And I did. So I go to my sponsor and he said, well... You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to come clean. You're going to have to go down and see the archbishop. So I proceeded to call, hoping that he would be tied up for the next two months. <laughs> and he said, come down tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> so I go down. And the unfortunate thing, he thought I was a great guy. I helped him out one time teaching in his high school. He used to teach chemistry, by the way. <laughs> organic chemistry, which the building blocks of organic chemistry, as you know, are the alcohols. <laughs> I was an expert on the alcohols. But was I stupid? So I went down and I started to tell the good archbishop my story. And as I progressed, I noticed a tear down one eye, then down the other, and he made no effort at all to hide it, brush it away. Before I was through, there was a stream of tears coming down both sides on his cheeks. He wasn't going to send me to Siberia. He could have. And when I got through, he said, kneel down. I'm going to give you my blessing. Now I'm going to make a prediction that you will have a great apostolate. You know, that man has been the biggest backer I've had. Last week, he celebrated his 60th anniversary as a priest and 40th year as an archbishop. I wrote him a letter. I told him that because of the fact that I was going to be in Seattle giving a retreat for A's and Al-Anon's, I was going to miss his celebration. But I wanted him to know the deep esteem and love I had for him for his fatherly consideration in listening to me and for the support he's given. I was on my way.
We sought through prayer and meditation to increase our conscious contact with God. You know, there are two kinds of prayer. And I think the Alki is very aware of this first type. There's spontaneous prayer, which comes spontaneously from the heart. Oh, God, help me. Get me off of this one and I'll get off of the next one myself. How many times we say that? <laughs> God, we were sincere. Or the Al-Anon says, oh, thank God he's gone. He's gone to A. See, those come right from the heart. But unfortunately, they come only too rarely. When we're either way up or way down. What's going to happen when we're in between? <laughs> we still got to pray. This is what we call willed or, willed or practice prayer. We all need God. Because we were created that way. We don't have any choice. We're searching, seeking for Him. Many a poor soul tries to find God in disguised forms. There are many false gods. But you've got to give that person E for effort. They're trying. This type of prayer requires effort. You know, there are 12 steps of AA. Originally, there were three. They'd go down in Skid Row and they'd see some poor guy down there and they'd ask him this question, do you want to quit drinking? If the fellow said yes, they'd ask him this question, do you believe in God? And if he said yes, then would you ask him to help you? Those are the initial three steps. There are three steps to prayer. Practice prayer. The first is recollection. When I come to meditation, I must recollect if I'm going to meditate. That's why we have retreats. You're in a better position to recollect. What does recollection mean? First of all, it means concentration. You know, the one word that impressed me more than anything else when I walked into that Skid Row group was the word think, printed on a card and hung up above the door. <laughs> I sat there during that first meeting trying to figure out what they meant. <laughs> That's how fouled up I was. I couldn't even get the idea what they were trying to convey to me. About the end of the meeting, it hit me like a hammer. How brutal can you get? Here's a guy with a degree. 13 years studying my... And I wasn't thinking. I'd quit thinking when I was thinking. It was stinking thinking. And you know, I use that one idea. I've got to learn to think. I'm like a boxer who was clipped. i got to clear up or I'm dead. And I knew it. And it took me at least six months to clear up. My sponsor told me, now listen, Barney, if you don't know what to do, don't do anything and call me immediately. That was his vote of confidence. And I remember one time a good doctor, you know, and these good doctors, he was a good, loving soul, but stupid on this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I get slipped back in the form, you know, I was telling him what a rough, he was saying, oh, you're doing fine. I, yeah, but, you know, I get so jittery at times, you know. And he says, well, I've got something for you. And I said, well, now, they tell me you're not supposed to take, but, well, this is not habit for me. And I said, all good, fine, and fine, take it, I'll take it. It wasn't a habit for him, but I was wondering why I was always watching the clock. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You know, I was tempted to go on daylight saving of any time, Stu. Remember one day I was sitting in the chair there, and my sponsor came in, he took one look at me, he says, where are they? I said, what? He says, where are they? I said, what? He says, don't con me. Those pills. Oh, I said, yo, the pills. I kind of figured that's what they were. But I wanted to be sure. You know, we don't like to commit ourselves, Alkies. You've got to be cagey how you commit yourself. So we proceeded to pull out the pills, and he says, I'm going to have you make the third step. You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to choose between me and those pills. If you take another pill, I'll never look at you again. Uh, you have to force an alky to make a free decision. <laughs> Didn't have any choice, so I said, okay. So he said, come on. We went over to the toilet of all places and dropped them in there, watched them dissolve, and then we flushed them. The last pill I ever took. Concentration. Then I must gather myself together. You know, we're all escapists. We want to run. Even when we come to prayer sometimes, we get nervous and jittery, jumping. We don't want to stand still. But you got to stand still. There is no reality greater than the reality of getting prayer. Someone has to find the alcoholic as a person in conflict with God, himself, and his neighbor. You can't get any farther out than that. Eh? It covers the field. And you know why? Because we lose the reality of God, ourselves, and our neighbor. And I don't know of a step that brings us into reality more than this one. I've got to face up to God. I've got to face up to myself and I've got to face up to my neighbor as they are. Not made to my image and likeness, no, but as they are. And that's what this step does. The second step, I must visualize God. I must see Him. To me, prayer meditation is like TV. Going to turn on TV, what am I going to see? What subject? What program? So I choose a subject. We can choose the one that Joe chose last night, the Lord curing the demoniac. I see that with my memory. My mind analyzes that. What does that mean to me 2,000 years later? Where do I fit into this thing? I'm that man. Now, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to try to do the same thing that that man did. Get cured and then do what he did. That's meditation. See, I've taken care of my mind, my will, and all my senses are turned over to God, as I understand. For that little minute, they belong entirely to Him. You know, this is one of the most beautiful things we can give in this life is time. It's the most unselfish thing you can give. I can give of talents, of my experience... I can give up material things if I have it. I am no less rich. But when I give an hour of my time in an AA meeting or in a 12-step call, I don't get a 25-hour tomorrow. It's still 24 hours. I've given up one hour for my brother. The most unselfish thing I can give. Now the third step, 
and the most vital, contact. What we're looking for in this step is conscious contact with God. If you can get that by hitting your head on a post, go ahead and hit it. I'll stand there and hold the post. I don't care how you get it. If you can get it riding a bicycle around the circle, get it that way. The idea is to get there. Don't let your prayer get in front of God so that you end up in prayer and don't get God. Prayer is a means, not the end. God is what I'm after. God's the one that gave me my sobriety. He's the one who wants it back. I must use it for him. So here I come before God, infinite in his perfections. And here I am, bankrupt with absolutely nothing. Now, this is the critical point. It's either going to be God as I understood him or God as I misunderstood him. And this can be a critical point for an elegant. Suppose it's God as I misunderstood him. The God of fear. I had an alky not long ago tell me, describe God to me, and when he got through, and he says, you know, I just run away from God. I said, you know, if I believed like that, I'd be running with you. Geez, I wouldn't stop for a God like that. I'd just get out of here. See? God as he misunderstood him. When I stand there in this case, it's not a question of communication, but confrontation. I confront God and it's not favorable. I'm uncomfortable. I'm irritable. I'm even rebellious. I'll even want to deny that he's there. We see this in AA. I see it. We have the so-called agnostic. And I'm not, if anybody in this group is an agnostic, I'm not saying this in any matter, shape, or form, to be critical. I respect your belief or lack of belief. But the agnostic denies the existence of God. Or the atheist denies the, the existence of God. The agnostic denies that you can prove that there's a God. And now we've got the, a new breed. It's not a question of denial. It's a question of deicide. They want to kill God and bury him. God is dead. You know, when I read that article in, I think it was Time magazine, I said, Dear God, don't let an Elkie read this and believe it. Because if he does, he's dead. If God is dead, we're through. We're through. There's no sense for any of this here if he's dead. But God is not dead. God's a spirit. He can't disintegrate. He has no parts. It's spiritual. We talk about the spiritual part of the program. Fits right in with God. He's spiritual. We know he's not dead. The fact that I'm speaking to you right now shows he's not dead. I'm living proof. Not only that he is life, but that he is love, that he is mercy. I'm the living example of it right here this morning. The Catholic priest talking to me. But I pray for these people. They are dead in spirit. And that's why in AA we have to keep that spirit alive. And that's one of the purposes of this 
eleventh step is keep the spirit alive. Then there is the favorable reaction, which results in communication. Not a monologue, but a dialogue. We listen, we talk. When I come to prayer, I bring certain requisites or qualifications that will increase the quality of my prayer. The first one is reverence. I must look upon God in a comfortable way, in a way that will not fill me with this terrible fear that I mentioned a moment ago. I like to look upon God as my father because that's what he is. And as Chuck says, I'm one of his kids. We're all his kids. I know that this father is infinitely loving, infinitely merciful, but also infinitely just and infinitely wise. <laughs> and I can't con him. <laughs> I think sometimes we did. You know, when you con your conscience, you're conning God, you're trying to. You know, where did the word con come from? I know one place it came from, your conscience. Conscience, with knowledge, is the meaning of conscience. Now, when you start goofing around with that knowledge, stinking thinking, what do you got left? Con. You got a con man. <laughs> Who are you trying to con? You're trying to con God and yourself, and maybe your wife is a byproduct. Well, you can con yourself and your wife, probably, for a while, until she goes to Al-Anon. <laughs> but we don't con God. The next thing I bring to my prayer is praise. You know, one of the beautiful things about AA, and this is sincere, I don't know of any group in the world that is so generous in their praise for one another as this group. Just do anything at all out of the ordinary and immediately and spontaneously they praise and thank and gratitude. It's, it's fantastic. And that's a beautiful virtue. You know, when I give praise to others, that's good for me. If I give praise to others and to God, I won't be getting around to praise myself. See, I give honor and credit where it's due. And you know, sometimes I think we take God too much for granted. Oh, he's God, so what? Expect these things from him. He likes to hear it. I must pray with humility. Lord, if I don't pray, I die. If I don't breathe, I die. Those are the same things as far as I'm concerned. If I don't pray, I die. I know it. I have to pray my way through life. Or I die, and I know it. My sobriety, my serenity, everything is dependent upon that for me. I must pray with confidence. If I realize that the one I pray to is not only infinitely powerful, but he's infinitely good, you can't beat that combination. He not only can do anything, but he is willing to do it. He's good enough to do it. If I ask. Finally, I must pray with fidelity. To me, this is the essence of prayer, fidelity. Sometimes you read these books on prayer, they make 
the essence of prayer is praying in some mystical state where you are kind of in a state of tranquilization, like you know you used to get after that second belt. <laughs> get in that suspended state of not, not feeling any pains. Lord, help us. Prayer isn't going to help you in that state. Prayer is something I must do, something I want to do, something I need. And I keep after. Asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be open. I remember, I probably have told some of you this story, but I'm going to repeat it because it's, it's always done me good. I remember one time I was in, going into the dentist to get some work done on my teeth. And I'm a little bit cowardly along that line, I'll be very frank with you. I'm allergic to dentists. God, they got these fast drills down and all that, but that still doesn't change it for me. The pain gets to me just that much faster. They say, it's faster. I say, well, you hit the nerve faster, too. So. My dentist spent a half hour trying to convince me the other day, and I was a nervous wreck by the time he started. Well, I was sitting in there thumbing through these magazines, you know, and I realized that I was reading this one for the third time. I thought, I'm getting a little nervous. Well, an elderly gentleman came in and sat beside me, and I noticed he was a little nervous, too. I was wondering what he was doing, and I didn't think a guy that old had any teeth. <laughs> well, anyway, he was nervous, so I thought, well, two nervous people get together, we may calm one another down. So I started a conversation, and, and I found out the reason the poor old guy was nervous wasn't because he was waiting for the dentist, because he was sitting next to me, a Catholic priest. <laughs> This is before Pope John. <laughs> well, anyway, I thought, well, we get talking here. And the subject of prayer came up. And he says, you know, Father, I'm not a Catholic. You're the first Catholic priest I've ever talked to. But I feel it's providential that I meet you today. Because I want you, as a priest, the mediator between God and men, to tell God something for me. I said, what is it? He said, I want you to tell God I'm going to quit praying. I said, what'd you say? He says, I want you to tell God I'm going to quit praying. I said, you do. I said, why do you say that? He says, I'll tell you. He says, 40 years ago, I began to pray for a certain intention. And he told me what it was, and it was considerable. And he says, I will guarantee, I will swear before you and God that I've never missed a day's prayer in 40 years. And I haven't got this thing. He had a resentment toward God. I have to tell God I'm going to quit praying for this thing. I'm going to quit praying, period. Gee, what a message to deliver. <laughs> Well, you know, this is how God works. I had just read, read uh, previous to that the statement, there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. So I hit, oh, elky me. I said, you know, in my best sacerdotal dignity, I said, you know, it is providential that we meet today. Because God wants me to tell you something. Well, the poor old guy looked at me and said, boy, this guy must have a walkie-talkie. Well, he gets them fast. I told him, I said, God wants me to tell you your prayer's been answered. And his face dropped as if this guy can't even hear. I said, did you ever hear the expression, there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer? And he said, no, I never heard that. And I said, well, I want to prove to you your prayer's been answered. I said, suppose God would have granted your petition, say, a month after you started praying 40 years ago. 
Could you be telling me today, 40 years later, that you'd never missed a day's prayer in 40 years? See, he looked at me and said, I might have stopped praying right after that. And I said, a lot of people do. I said, God, by saying no to you, has kept you praying daily for 40 years. You have received one of the greatest gifts God can give you. The gift of perseverance in prayer. I'm not through yet. I got another message. He says, I want you to tell God, send God another message. Old Western Union means. I want you to tell God that I'm going to continue to pray for that petition and I hope I never get it. (laughs) Praying only for the knowledge of His will. You know, there are no limits to our petitions, legitimate petitions, providing we put this writer, Thy will be done. To pray for health, sobriety, return of a wife, husband, or whatever it might be. But in this step, you pray not for those things. You are limited in what you must pray for. You pray only for two things. First of all, for the knowledge of His will. God that I may see. There's another parable in the scriptures of the blind man. Christ passed by and he said, Lord, that I might see. Next to the knowledge of God, the greatest knowledge we can have is self-knowledge, and that's what we look for here in AA, true self-knowledge. So I pray for self-knowledge. And then the second great gift, the power to carry that out, light to see, the strength to do, and all these other things will be added to you. If you have these two. That's all we pray for. In conclusion, I mentioned the third step in the beginning of this little talk. I tell you what I do. I begin each day by making the third step. Because I'm living this 24 hours a day, and I don't think you can make it once for life unless you're going to live one day. So I turn it over to him. I turn over my mind. I say, dear God, this day be in my mind with thoughts of you, proper thoughts about myself and my fellow men. If I have that, I that day will have mental sobriety. And then I say, dear God, this day be in my heart to love as I should, the way I should. This way I have emotional sobriety. And then I say this day, dear God, keep your arms around me and protect me in my conscience that I do not violate it this day in any serious way. And now I have moral sobriety. And with these three sobrieties, I have physical sobriety in the highest order. And I also begin my day kind of upside down like the alky I was. You know, 
prayer ends with the word Amen or Amen. But that's the way I start my day. Instead, putting it at the end of the day, I put it the first of the day. I put Amen and then I have the blank sheet and I say, now you fill it out for the day. Give me the orders. You know how weak I am. What my weaknesses are, how much I can take today. Maybe I can't take as much today as I did yesterday, but your infinite wisdom, so take care of me. Don't give me anything today that I can't hack. Take care of me. Keep me in my surprise. And I'll be happy. This has been a great privilege to talk to you people here today. You're an inspiration. I hope that something I may have said will be helpful to you. I know it's helped me. Because everything I say, before it goes to you, it goes through the filter of me. Because I'm one of you, and I thank God that I am. Father Fred, I had a little, uh, just a little bit of uh, hesitation in accepting him uh, real good because he wasn't a jibby, you know. But by George, he changed my mind before he got through. been my happy privilege to walk down the path pretty closely with Father Barney. And it was also my privilege to know and to love Father Ed Dowling, who was also a Jebby. Now, Father Ed was not a member of our society in that he was not an alcoholic. But he had known our society and loved it and worked with us from its inception until the time of his death. And in St. Louis a few years back, it was my privilege to talk at their annual banquet. And Father Ed was there, and he gave a little prayer at the opening of the deal for those amongst us who had slipped away during the time 
AA had been in St. Louis. And then I talked, and afterwards we were going for coffee. And uh, Mrs. C. says to me, uh, let's ask Father Ed if he'll have coffee with us. And I said, well, that'd be a marvelous thing. And being an alky, I said, you ask him. <laughs> and so Mrs. C. asked him. And he quickly agreed. And we went and sat down in the booth, ordered our coffee, and Father Ed started plying me with questions. And he wouldn't quit. And I would say to him, Father, I've talked all evening. Please, you talk. Let me listen for a while. And he'd ask another question. And the last question he asked was, Chuck, what of the family? What of the family? Tell me about what's happened in the family. And I said, Father, Mrs. C is with us. We'll let her answer that one. And she told him what had happened in the family. Now, Father Ed had a little habit of pursing up his little mouth and gazing off into space. And when Mrs. C. had finished, he sat there with his mouth pursed, off, pursed up, looking off into space for seemingly a long, long time. And then he turned and he says, Do you know something, Chuck? And I says, What's that, Father? And he said, Sometimes I have to believe that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. And I looked to Mrs. C., and I says, honey, where is the difference? Where is the difference? Most certainly heaven is a new pair of glasses. A new motivation. A new set of values. A new action pattern. A. How fortunate can we be when peoples like us are so freely given and so freely instructed and so freely loved that we might be given the new pair of glasses, that we might be returned from the living land of the living dead into the land of the living, that we might come out of hell into heaven. What a precious, precious thing it is that we can share one with another together in a meeting like this with a man of God who is also a man 
of us. God bless Father Barney and his work. God bless you and yours. And may he keep us all in this way. Bless you. Thank you, Chuck, and all of the members of Chuck's panel for helping us with this meeting. I'm sure that we're all a little bit richer for this meeting. Before closing this meeting in a traditional manner, I have a few announcements that are of interest to everyone, and uh, if you'd please make note of them. The closing AA meeting will be here in the Convention Center at 1.30 p.m. The principal speaker is Hazel R. from New York, and you'll all want to be here, I'm sure. As you see on your programs, the checkout time is 7 p.m. with no extra charge. I might add to this, this is a great convenience because if any of you are driving home, the freeway at least right near Palm Springs is much, there's much less traffic at this time than there is in the early afternoon around 3 o'clock. We have a farewell party in the Roundup Club Room from 4 to 7 p.m. The hotel is serving a chicken dinner from 5 to 7 p.m. for $1.95. Dancing will be from 4 p.m. And Maury has arranged a great trio, uh, Bobby Hill trio, for your entertainment during this time. Uh, we'd like to suggest uh, the tapes that will be available. The entire meeting, including the speaker, the steps, and every part of this meeting has been taped. The tape, if you desire to, or you can either order all of the tapes or just this tape or any tape that you want. This meeting is known as tape number six for your reference. Now we have another suggestion for you. Many of the people who came to the Desert Roundup in a spirit of generosity have offered to pay for the literature that's available. Uh, this literature has been paid for and we're happy to have you take it with you. But we do suggest, if you'd like to make a donation for this literature, make it to your home group. Uh, after a moment's meditation, we'll close this meeting in the traditional manner. I'd like to ask my wife, Madeline, to lead us in the Lord's Prayer.